All right. You guys know, if you've been around here for a little while, that I grew up out in the country on a farm. Farm boy from Tennessee. I love telling stories about how I grew up uh, back in the country where we say things like, all y'all. So I like, I'll see all y'all today at four. Like y'all is two, all y'all is three plus. Yeah, I learned that growing up in Tennessee. And uh, my grandparents, Granny and Papa, they had about a 50-acre farm about a half mile from the 17-acre farm that I grew up on. And so I, I grew up at Granny and Papa's house after school and during the summers. And my sister and I and then my three cousins, we were always there together. And one of our favorite things to do uh, on the farm was to go search for clover patches. You guys remember doing that when you were a kid? And it was fun to find one that we had never found before. And then obviously when you find a clover patch, you're all on your hands and knees and you're kind of maneuvering. You're looking for a four-leaf clover. And it was all this celebration when you found one, then we would take it to granny and then she would put it, she would close it in a book and smash it and then she would give it to you and then you could go take it home and put it in a book for you. And it was like luck, right? Like a lucky four-leaf clover, right? Anybody ever do this growing up before? Yeah, it's wonderful. I have fond memories of that. Lucky four-leaf clover. Also, when I was a kid, I don't know how I got this, but I remember having a lucky rabbit's foot on a keychain, which is real random, I mean, that's real, real random and nasty. Like how did a rabbit's foot end up being like a good luck charm? But somehow I get this rabbit's foot, it's on a keychain, and I can remember like clipping it onto my belt loop and walking around with like a rabbit's foot. And now like in my house, like I would choose not to have any animals living in my home. But there are four animals that live in my home. One of which is in my 14-year-old daughter's room, and it is a rodent, rabbit, and it's nasty. And I can say that because she's not here, and she probably won't listen to my sermon. But that's like lucky rabbit's foot. Like, it just feels kind of random and nasty, if we're honest. So, four-leaf clovers, lucky rabbit's feet. Another one, Judy. It wasn't lucky for the rabbit. No, lucky for me. Well, not, not lucky for me either. Last, last, little, uh, last little story. I love the Disney movie Aladdin. And my son was the genie in his eighth grade, like Aladdin performance at Bolts Middle School. And it was so wonderful. And it was fun to see him be Aladdin in that, in that story. And why am I talking about four leaf clovers and rabbit's feet and genies in a lamp? Because, because God is not a lucky charm. God is not a four-leaf clover. God is not a lucky rabbit's foot or a genie in a bottle. Uh, being a disciple of Jesus, coming in and out of God's sanctuary uh, does not make all of the hard things in life go away, does it? God isn't a genie in a bottle. But being a disciple of Jesus and coming in and out of God's sanctuary um, gives us opportunity to be refreshed in God's presence and be refreshed in the peace that he gives and the hope that we have in the midst of the hard things that we endure in life. Worshiping together like we just did, fellowshipping together like we did coming in and getting coffee, talking and engaging with one another, uh, having a sense of, of family feel and fellowship together. Um, it strengthens us. Like being in God's word together, it strengthens us in joy uh, fixing our eyes in, on Jesus, um, 
centers us in God. But, but the wisdom from Ecclesiastes is this. Being a disciple of Jesus does not give us immunity to hard things. It does center us in God's sovereignty. It centers us in the hope that we have that God is with us and that he never leaves us or forsakes us. And that even though we might grieve in life, no one, nothing can take our joy away from us. But it doesn't give us immunity to hard things. Genesis chapter 3, fall of mankind fractured, fractured our world. And now we live east, east of Eden. That's the world that we are living in where oppression and evil and disease and tragedy exists. As the teacher in Ecclesiastes has been pointing out to us chapter after chapter, week after week, uh, the teacher was looking forward to the promised Messiah coming, the prophecies of the Savior coming to redeem and save the world. And so the teacher's holding onto the hope of the coming Messiah east of Eden. We, we live on this side of the cross, celebrating the joy that Messiah has come and that Jesus, by his blood, has redeemed mankind and that his, by his resurrection we have hope of eternal life and that this hybel, this breath, this life that we have isn't all that there is. And so contextually, as we look at Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, certainly the teacher is holding on to hope, looking for the promised Messiah east of Eden. We live celebrating the reality that Messiah has come and has promised to come again, but we also live east of Eden where brokenness and hard things still exist. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 was our passage last week, and the context of those verses is uh, what we're experiencing right now, like God's people all together in the sanctuary. We get to verse eight in chapter five today and the people of God have now left the sanctuary back into the world east of Eden and that's where we are. And guess what? The under the sun world outside of God's sanctuary didn't transform itself into heaven while we were gathered here in the sanctuary. The house of God is not a genie's lamp, not a four-leaf clover. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. So we come and we get refreshed and we get centered in God and the joy and the peace that we have here. And we need this. That's why the the author of Hebrews says, don't give up the habit of doing what we're doing right now and all the more encourage one another, give encouragement, speak courage over people here so that we can go out there and be the witnesses and the light and the ambassadors that God has called us to be. And it's hard out there. It's broken out there. It's the fall of mankind out there, as you know and as I know and as we all know, and one commentator speaking about Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7, what we get to experience here in this space on a week-to-week -week basis. I love this statement. 
He said, it's the mar- God's sanctuary is the marvelous sanity for our souls. That we get to come in here and receive sanity, refreshment, help, equipping for our souls. Because we know, we know, we, you know, we know that we're not immune to the hard things in life. Summary statement of our passage today, Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through the end of chapter 6. He leaves the sanctuary. Here's what the scholars kind of give. This isn't scripture, so if you have your Bible open, uh, you know there's those summary statements of like larger swaths of scripture. Those are not in the original text, so it's not actually scripture. It's what scholars put in there to kind of summarize a passage of scripture. Uh, I teach from the NIV, and in uh, my Bible, it gives this for our passage of the morning. Riches are meaningless. Like we come into God's sanctuary. We learned this last week. As you come into God's sanctuary, it's better to listen than to speak. So let your words be few. Therefore, stand in awe and worship. We leave the sanctuary, riches are meaningless, NIV. The ESV uses this language, the vanity of wealth and honor. The New Living Translation gives our passage of the morning this summary statement, the futility of wealth. The preacher invites us into the sanctuary, the beginning of chapter five, let your words be few. God is in heaven and you are on earth, let your words be few. It's better to listen, therefore be in awe of God and worship, receive from God. But then we leave God's sanctuary and so the teacher, he sees, he leaves the sanctuary and he sees the greed that's in the world and he sees the envy and the clamoring for more, for more, for more. And as a reminder, a lot, of, a lot of this is his own testimony. He had everything, chapter one, everything. And his, like nothing that his eyes de- desired that he refrained from. Like a lot of this is his own testimony of what he's learned in his own life. And he sees the greed and the envy and the clamoring for more. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he sees this. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is hybel. That's the Hebrew word. Typically translated meaningless or vanity or futile. Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. He sees the greed, the envy in the world. He sees the harm done by the greed and the envy of the world. He sees the harm done by those who have power, those who have money. He says these two statements, Ecclesiastes 5.13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Like there's something poisonous about hoarding, about having, about operating in that way, in that selfish way. Ecclesiastes 6.10, no man can contend with who is stronger than he. I'm not gonna read, it's a pretty large swath of scripture. I'm not gonna read all the verses from chapter five, verse eight through the end of chapter six, but I would encourage you to do that later. And what you're gonna read about 
is abuses that happen east of Eden by the rich to the poor. You'll read about calamity caused by selfish and foolish leaders. You'll read about the problem of a lack of contentment and how that breeds like misfortune and frustration and affliction and anger, example after example after example after example of what the teacher sees outside of the sanctuary and what he calls over and over and over throughout the book, this chasing after the wind. I want to read just a few verses with you in chapter 5, verse 15. Chapter 15 is probably a verse that you might be familiar with, or verse 15, excuse me. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. Verse 16, this too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and Anger. Give me some good news, Swain. Give me some good news. I'm going to give you good news. But I want to align myself with the teacher as well and give you honest news, authentic news as well. If we don't keep ourselves centered in God... Life out of the sanctuary can quickly dishearten us, can it? Certainly, there is refreshment here. I pray that as you come and you leave this sanctuary, that you have genuine encounters with the God of all grace and the God of all comfort. I, I pray genuinely that you feel this sense of equipping and encouragement in God's word and that you leave with a, a true sense of refreshment in the Lord, in his presence, in his house, in his sanctuary, that you feel connected to people genuinely, that you feel connected to people and you have a sense of belongingness here. Uh, but, we, but we leave this place and we go back in to the world east of Eden. And I think sometimes if we're honest, the mountaintop experiences perhaps that we feel here in God's sanctuary, they just don't last long enough, do they? Like you've probably, if you grew up in, in Christian community in a church or at a camp, like do you remember like having those like quote mountaintop experiences when you were like a kid and then you gotta go back home? Well, that's, that's the reality of our lives here as well. We come into God's sanctuary to get equipping, to get encouragement, to be refreshed, and then we go back into the world. That's the text of the morning, and the world is east of Eden. I don't know if you've ever thought about these stories, really, really um, familiar stories in the Gospels, like this story in Luke chapter 7. There's a Pharisee that was having this dinner party, and he invited Jesus to this dinner party and all the religious leaders were around. And in that day, if there was a dinner party and you were like a guest, you could be at the table, but other people could come and like sit along the outside and hear like a rabbi 
teach. And there was a, a woman, a Samaritan woman. And she was a sinful woman. Most scholars believe she was a well-known prostitute in town. And she came to the gathering. She came to the gathering. And Jesus was there. And she was so broken over her own doing, her own life. Do you know the story? And she began to weep. And her tears fell on the feet of the, do you know the story? The feet on the feet of the Savior. And then she began Jesus didn't like shoo her away. He didn't refuse the way she was serving him. She had a reputation, you got. I mean, she had a reputation and she she came to the sanctuary where Jesus was. And she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair. Do you know this story, Luke 7? Are you with me? Yeah. And then she kissed the feet of Jesus. Like I just, like when we come in here, we worship. Like we, we stand in on worship. We play music and we sing and we, we come together and we worship. But I just go, is there, a, is there a more palpable example of worship of Jesus in the scripture than this Samaritan sinful woman kissing the feet of Christ? And then she took perfume and poured perfume on his feet and Jesus ministered to her. He ministered to her. She radically experienced in the presence of God the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. And he's told her, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. All who call the name of Jesus will be saved. Your faith in me has saved you. Go in peace. But have you ever considered what it was like for her to leave the sanctuary back into her reality. She was still a Samaritan. She was still a woman in a very misogynistic culture. And she still had a reputation. She had the peace of Christ. She, she experienced the refreshment, but she had to go back east of Eden. This is, this is life. Or Lazarus, right? The famous story of Lazarus. Uh, Jesus was so close. He was, uh, they, were, they were just, they were friends like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Lazarus had died. John chapter 11. And Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus that his friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus lingered where he was. You, you know the story, John 11. And then when he finally made it to Bethany, I mean, Mary and Martha were a little upset about it. And it was like, if you would have been here, like, you could have done something. But now he's been in the tomb for like four days. And you might know the story. I mean, Jesus, like that famous phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Lazarus, come out. Miracle, miracle story of God. Lazarus, four days in the tomb, he comes out. Yet only... Days later, John chapter 12. Have you ever thought about what happened after that story? Like I think sometimes we just like linger in John 11. We're like, man, miracle story. Do you think when Lazarus came out that there was like this like celebration of joy and thanksgiving? I mean, oh my goodness. Can you imagine being there? But he's back in Eden. 
He's east of Eden. John chapter 12. Meanwhile, this is days after. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, they came not only because of Jesus, but because of Lazarus, to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, the religious Jewish leaders of the day, the chief priests, they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Welcome back, Lazarus. Now you have a bounty on your head, east of Eden. They wanted to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Hallelujah. That comes with a price. East of Eden. It's not just us. Right? Big question of the day. Why come to church at all if coming to church doesn't change anything about the world that we live in? Like, what's the point? The real talk of Ecclesiastes, the real talk for us this morning, churchgoers are not immune to the harsh, hard, broken realities east of Eden. Forgiven and set free sinners, you have been given a new name, a new identity, your sons and daughters of God, you are the righteousness of Christ, All that's true will also have things happen in your life that happens to anyone. Even people like Lazarus who have miracle, radical, miracle stories still live east of Eden and will have things happen to them as happens to anyone. Anyone thinking this? Swain, can we, get, can we get to the good news this morning? You're killing me, Smalls. To which I say, I feel you, dog. I feel you. Trust me. Trust me. I feel you. So does the teacher. So does the teacher. He is lamenting. If you want some perspective of the teacher lamenting in life, East of Eden, read chapter 6. What we just read in verses 16, 17, 15, 16, and 17, lamenting, but he's going to give you some good news. In the midst of it all, like accepting life on life's terms is worth lamenting. And also, accepting life on life's terms, east of Eden, is not void of hope and peace and joy. It's not either or, it's both and as people of God because God's word has power in our lives. Let's read the next verses. Verse 18, he had just said in verse 17, he talked about darkness and great frustration and affliction and anger. Verse 18, and then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat And drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. During the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. This verse 18 is a recurring theme that we've already seen in our study. Verse 19. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions. And enables him to enjoy them. To accept his lot. 
and to be happy in his work. This is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Verse 20. He's so caught up, God is keeping him so occupied with gladness of heart, keeping his eyes on eternity, that things like frustration and affliction and anger, they they submit to the gladness of heart that we get to have as people of God. It doesn't mean that frustration and anger and tension isn't part of life, East of Eden. It just means that it submits to the gladness of heart that God gives us by his promises because his promises are more powerful than the frustration and the affliction and the anger that you feel about life under the sun, East of Eden. Like this is, this is the real reality of holding our our lament and holding the hope and the peace that we have because of God's promises all at the same time. I read verses 18 to 20 and I go, it's not what the teacher's saying is not gladness of heart because of all the circumstances. What the teacher is saying is that God gives us gladness of heart in the midst of all the hard circumstances. It's the supernatural reality of walking by our faith and not by our sight. I read verses 18 to 20 in chapter 5, and it reminds me of one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 121. And the psalmist begins with East of Eden. Like, I lift my eyes up to the hills or to the mountains. Big question of the day, where does my help come from? Have you ever thought about this? Where is the psalmist living when he says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains? Is he on the mountaintop? No, he is where? He is in the valley. And he's looking in the midst of that space, that hardship, that hard reality of east of Eden. And he's looking to the mountains. Where's my help going to come from? Question of the day. Where does my help come from? That's the big question. The big answer is the next verse in Psalm 121. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Next verse, the Lord watches over you. The Lord watches over your life. Next verse, the Lord will watch over your coming and going. We come into the sanctuary and we leave the sanctuary. We come into the sanctuary, we leave the sanctuary. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forever more. It's not a watches over your life like you're over there and I'm way over here and I am watching over. That's not, it's not the picture. Another translation says the Lord keeps, keeps your life. 
The Lord keeps you. You are a keepsake. He's watching. He's keeping. Coming and going both now and forevermore. Like when our eyes get fixed on just the hard things east of Eden that we are not immune from. On the world, on its evil, on things that happen in our own life and what's happening in Israel. Like if our eyes are fixed only on that, well, it is easy for us to despair. But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we can endure, we can overcome because we have been empowered With their eyes fixed on Jesus, we can hold on. There's a song out right now, and I don't know who sings it, and I'm not even going to know all the lyrics, but basically it just says over and over, like, hold on. I, I, I just said I wasn't going to sing it, and then I'll start singing it. <laughs> I don't want to sing it because I can't sing, but it's like the only way I can even think about the lyrics is to try to get the melody. Hold on just a little bit longer. Do you know what I'm talking about? What's the next line of that song? Hold on for one more day or something like that. And I don't, I don't dislike the song, right? I think, it's a, I think it's a good song, and I've been thinking about that song because I think it relates, has relevancy to what we're talking about this morning. But if I'm honest with you, we've talked about this in the series already, sometimes I don't have any more strength to hold on. And I need you to hold on to me as you hold on. That's pretty profound. But even more important than that is that the object of your faith is holding on to you as you are going through a dark night of the soul, as you are in the valley asking your questions, as you look to the mountains, where's my help coming from? Because Jesus said, nothing will snatch you out of my hand. Paul said in Romans 8, nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we hold on. But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we are also reminded that Jesus is holding on to us. Amen? And that is more powerful than my ability to hold on. Is Jesus holding on to me? Big question of the day. Why come to church if coming to church doesn't change anything? Big answer of the day. We come to church so that we get changed. We come to the sanctuary to be refreshed in God's presence, to be strengthened, to be empowered, to endure, and to overcome. And when I get changed, and if you get changed by the worship, by the fellowship, by prayer, by the teaching of God's word, like if you get changed, you get strengthened and then you leave the sanctuary. The world is still east of Eden, but you are empowered to change a little bit in the world around you and advance the kingdom of God to love your neighbors as you love yourself, to be witness to what God has done in your life. And we have an opportunity to be world changers, even though east of Eden is still very much around us. Immunity does not exist from the harsh realities of the world in this hybel that we are living in, but intimacy with God does. Immunity doesn't exist, but comfort does. Immunity doesn't exist, but empowerment does. 
a peace that passes all understanding does. The promise that the God of peace will be with you does. Jesus said this in John 8, one of my favorite statements in the Gospels. Uh, you, will, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 16, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. You will know me. You will know the truth of Jesus. And when you know the truth of Jesus, you will be set free. Do you believe that the promises of God have power? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you believe that the promises of God have real power in your real life? The Lord watches, personalize this. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is watching over your life. Make it even more intimate. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. The Lord watches over you. He will watch over your life. The Lord watches over your coming and going both now and forevermore. I'm speaking the power of God's word over you. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Get free. Get free. Immunity from pain does not exist on this side of heaven, but intimacy does. God doesn't just meet with us in the sanctuary. He meets with us outside these walls. Do you know that wherever you go, you carry the anointing, the authority of God in your life? Because you have the Holy Spirit of Christ in you. So that every room you walk in out of the sanctuary changes when you walk into it. Let you think about that for a moment. Like we're living east of Eden. We're not immune from the pain. We're not immune from the struggle. But this is also true. Every single room you walk into changes the moment you walk in there because you carry the anointing and the presence of God because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm speaking the power of God's promises over you, church. Are you all here this morning with me? Receive it. Be changed by it. Be empowered by it. Be transformed by it. Be healed by it. Be encouraged by it. Because we need it. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Because it's the Lord's joy everywhere you go. Like I mentioned this already. It's John 16. The day before, the Thursday night before the cross. Jesus is looking at the disciples. And he's like, boys. You're, you're going to grieve. You are going to grieve. But no one can take your joy away because it's my joy in you. That's supernatural. That is supernatural. I'm speaking the power of God's words over you. Draw near, draw near to listen. Let your words be few, standing on worship. 
I'm not up here preaching for you to leave this sanctuary and go white knuckle and grit your teeth and do more and be better and accomplish this or that. I'm up here preaching for you to get really centered in the main thing today, and that is that God gives you an intimate relationship with himself so that you are empowered when you leave the sanctuary. I'm up here preaching to you to believe and receive a message that is true, that is full of hope and joy and peace, all in the name, all in the name and the work of Jesus. Worship team, you guys can come back up. I'm gonna close this conversation of holding both and together with a story from Acts chapter two. We are 50 days or so after the cross and the resurrection. And Peter and the 11 disciples are in real trouble. Like Luke 7, the Samaritan woman, back east of Eden, Lazarus, John 11, John 12, back east of Eden, like Peter and the disciples, Acts chapter one, like literally on the Mount of Olives as Jesus ascends to heaven. The same exact spot that Jesus has promised he will come back, Mount of Olives, Jerusalem. Let us continue to pray for peace in Israel. But Acts chapter two, east of Eden, and they're in real trouble. Like evil is lurking. And he's pleading, Peter is pleading with the people, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And he quotes Psalm 16. And perhaps, perhaps this is the best way for us to answer our big question of the day. What's the point of coming here? I'm gonna read this over you. The, the word of God is powerful. So I'm gonna read this over you and then we're gonna worship. We're gonna, then we're gonna stand in awe and worship. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, men and women, people of Two Rivers Church gathering this morning, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, hallelujah. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter quotes David in Psalm 16. I'm speaking this over you this morning. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Get free. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad. God occupies us with gladness of heart, even in the midst of hard things that we're going through east of Eden. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Lord, would you fill us with joy. Refresh us in joy. Refresh us in peace. Refresh us in the hope that we have. Lord, we come to listen and receive and be strengthened this morning. Empower us. Empower us. We want to see heaven break through in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, we ask for deliverance. Lord, we ask for a fresh anointing in our lives as we leave here today. Lord, we don't want to go do more. We want to believe something different. We want to believe that we are the anointed, empowered sons and daughters of the Most High King. Lord, occupy us in a fresh way with gladness of heart as we respond and worship.